as that song said, we're looking forward to the day in which every nation will shout of God's fame. And so here at North Sub, we are reaching out globally. So good to see George and Emily, isn't it? And uh, we're reaching out locally. Raise your hand if you're helping serve at sports camp in some way this week. Yes, an army of volunteers this week. It takes a team effort to make God known here in our neighborhood and around the world. Um, grateful for all of you and your contributions to those efforts. Let's pray now. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. A high school soccer player, a Christian, prays so hard he'll make the team. First minute of tryouts, pulls his hamstring, misses out on the spot. A young woman, again a Christian, watches all her friends get married while she remains single in part because of relationships ending due to her commitment to Christian sexual ethics. A young married couple, again Christian, they painfully celebrate pregnancy announcement after pregnancy announcement for the others in their friend group while they themselves can't seem to get pregnant. These situations are enough to make us ask, God, why don't you seem to be concerned with what's fair? I bet you could tell a story like that. In fact, I want to invite you to take out your phone and anonymously just text in an example if you would like to. The number to text is 224-300-0240. Not looking for the whole story, just one phrase or one sentence summary. For example, got overlooked for a job that I was more qualified for. Or lost a parent and didn't get to say goodbye. Right? What we're looking for is something just like that. Uh, a text about well, a situation that made you say, well, God, why don't you seem to be concerned with what's fair? And the reason I'm inviting these texts is because sometimes it feels like we're alone in these experiences, but after I read a few out loud later in the service, I think it might surprise some of us. Like, oh, I'm not the only one who's gone through this. Many of us have walked or are walking through some version of, hey, this doesn't really seem right, God. Not after all I've done for you. So go ahead and Anytime in the next two, three minutes, shoot a text to that number um, with the time when you felt that way. Um, for those of us who have felt something like that toward God at some point, Jesus tells a parable that might hit a particular nerve. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. There's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Pull it up on a Bible app. This is week two of our summer sermon series on the parables of Jesus. Parables are stories that employ comparison, relating this thing that we do understand to this other thing that we might not understand, right? So if you missed last week, that one might be an important one to go back and listen to at some point because last week we looked at the parable about parables, the parable in which Jesus explains why he tells parables. And essentially he explains in that passage, Mark 4, that in his telling of parables, he expects two things to happen simultaneously. One, those who are trying to hear him will see the long, mysterious secrets of the kingdom of God revealed in front of their eyes. At the same time, those who aren't trying to hear him will get so hardened against him that they'll lose their ability to hear him at all. One story two functions. 
right? And so we asked God last week to make us the sort of people that summer who fall in that first group, right, who have ears to hear. So where we pick up today in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus has just been talking to his disciples about how amazing the future kingdom is going to be. For those of his followers who are willing to lose earthly things that they treasure for Jesus' sake, and he concludes that discussion with this summary statement in chapter 19, verse 30. This is the last verse of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. But what does that statement mean, you know? I mean, just the other day, I overheard one of my kids tell her other kids, hey, did you know the last will be first? That means if you let me win this game now, that's actually good for you because it'll mean you'll win when we play in heaven. Sarah and I heard that and didn't even know where to begin addressing the toxic theology there. Um, but assuming that that isn't what it means, that the last will be first, what does it mean? Well, for those who have ears to hear, for those who want to hear, today's parable is intended to answer that question of what does this mean? Uh, what does it mean for the first to be last and last to be first? Matthew makes sure that we know that that's the point of this parable because he places the parable right after chapter 19, verse 30, and then concludes the parable with a record of Jesus repeating the same statement in chapter 20, verse 16. So, last to be first and the first last. That's how Matthew, the author, is showing us, hey, what I have sandwiched here between 1930 and 2016 is... Uh, Jesus elaborating on what he means by this, right? And so it's appropriate, I think, that we read the parable already exploring it in that direction. So here we go. It's a parable about a landowner who hires workers to work in his vineyard and then pays them for their work. So we'll work through the text in order. Hiring, payment, complaint, response, and a summary statement. Hiring, payment, complaint, response, summary statement. Uh, first, the workers are hired, verses 1 through 7. So, uh, as you may have seen, I, I formally titled this sermon, The Workers in the Vineyard, because many of us will see that title and say, ah, I know that one. Uh, but in reality, that's not a great title. Right off the bat, from verse 1, Jesus signals that this parable isn't primarily about the workers. It doesn't say, in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like workers. What's it say? Who's it about? The point of comparison is, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. He's the one we're supposed to be focused on, the landowner. So let's center him in the story as we read the portion in which he hires workers. Uh, this is verses 1 through 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard, and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard. Jesus' hearers would have all easily related to this scene. Many, fire, many farmers hired day laborers, right? All sorts of people ended up being day laborers at some point along their lives, from poor folks 
to people who are landowners of their own right, but who look to be hired midday after working in their own smaller fields in the morning. So, so when looking for work as a day laborer, you would wait in the town square to be hired. And often it must have felt like a high-pressure situation, right? You needed that work to eat. Your family's livelihood was in the hands of whatever landowner might be willing to hire you. And that's why Torah required that day laborers get paid that day, same day, for the work that they did. Don't make these people wait when they need that money now for their family. Right? So that's the backdrop for the actions of this landowner. The workday is dawn to dusk, roughly 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. with breaks. So at dawn, our landowner uh, hires some folks who had gotten up before the sun to maximize their chances of being hired. A denarius is what he hires them for. That, it's a coin that was a standard day's wage. It's easy to agree on that amount. So the first group of workers agree and start getting after it. At 9 a.m., our landowner comes back to the town square because he's open to hiring some more workers. These agree to work for whatever is right. They don't haggle. They don't have leverage to haggle. They're happy to just have work that will pay them something. The vagueness of the landowner's promise here increases the risk that at the end of the day he could theoretically mess them over, right? But they're kind of at his mercy at this point, so they accept it. Now, in what would have been pretty surprising to Jesus' hearers, at noon and at 3 p.m., the landowner does the same thing. He brings on even more workers. Notice, we aren't told whether these new hires slept in originally, whether they showed up late, or whether they've been waiting since the crack of dawn and just been getting passed over for more impressive candidates. Remember, Jesus isn't interested in telling us all that much about why the workers hadn't gotten hired earlier, because he doesn't want our focus to be on them. But notice also on the landowner's side, there's no explanation of why this landowner keeps coming back. Specifically, it doesn't ever say that he needs more workers or that there's too much work for those he's already hired. Take a look at the language regarding his motives. Why does he offer these jobs? Well, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. Well, he found others standing around. It's never, I'm swamped with work, I need you guys. It's never... Uh, hey, you look, uh, instead it's, you look like you need a job, right? Which may be a hint in this text that he's hiring these people for their sake, to give them the dignity of paid work rather than because he's in some kind of tight spot. Right? In any case, in the part of the parable where Jesus' hearers would have started to say, okay, this is straining what's reasonable now. At 5 p.m., there's only one hour left in the workday. But either because there's still lots of work left to do or more likely because he's compassionate toward people who need to find work in order to live, he makes one more trip to the town square and hires one more round of workers. These workers surely being some of the least competent, least skilled, least impressive workers since they're the ones who haven't gotten snatched up at any, by any other employers all day. So the net result of all of this as we zoom out on what we've looked at so far is he's got all these different people working in his vineyard. Some who worked only the last hour of the day, others who worked some small or large portion of the day, all the way up to those who busted their tails for the full 12-hour workday. So now it's payment time. Verses 8 through 10. Deuteronomy set the expectation. You pay your day laborers on that day. They're relying on that money to provide for their families' immediate needs, so this landowner is happy to do that. Time to settle up. Let's read verses 8 through 10. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, 
Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. This landowner makes a peculiar decision here to specify that he wants the last workers paid first, meaning that the first ones will know what the last ones were paid. But that causes an issue because he pays the last group of workers more than they had expected to be paid. They got a whole denarius a whole, for a whole day's work, even though they only did an hour. Some of you high school students just starting your summer jobs might say, that sounds good, work an hour, get a day's wage. But as soon as the rest of the workers see the denarius pass from the foreman to the 11th hour additions, they're nudging each other, we could imagine. They're dapping each other up. They're like, hey, man, if they got a denarius, here we go, right? We're definitely getting more. What are we going to get? But one after the next, every worker gets a denarius. Same pay stub for the one who barely worked long enough to break a twilight sweat and for the one who grinded out a full 12-hour day. Who do you identify with in the story so far? And how does this sit with you? It didn't sit well with the first group of workers. They put into words some of the gut reactions most of us probably have when we read this. They complain, right? And before we read the specific wording of their complaint question, have the actions of this landowner been good or evil? What do you think? To many of us, it doesn't feel good. And maybe it triggers some of that that you felt. Right? Here's what you said when I asked you about situations that made you question God's commitment to fairness. Uh, missed out on work advancement because I didn't go out bar hopping. Lost a grandfather suddenly due to an illness and wasn't able to say goodbye. Suffered a stillbirth at eight months of pregnancy. Why don't we have loving family nearby to help us raise our kids? Why do my friends always leave me? My kids lost of a grandfather before they had a chance to really know and learn from him. Parkinson's disease, loved ones who struggle so deeply with depression and anxiety. Spouse dies young with four young children left for me to raise alone. My close family member is a good person but doesn't trust in Jesus as their Savior yet, so I can't expect that they'll go to heaven. Ex wife abandoning the marriage. Those are real. And none of us are alone in feeling this way. Let's see how the workers put into words what feels wrong about it. Verses 11 and 12. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. Note the essence of the appeal to this landowner. In the name of justice... They're ironically appealing against equality. You made them equal to us? Mr. Landowner, your commitment to equality is wrong. 
it's unfair, it's unjust. It's essentially what they're saying. And I don't know about you, but as an aside, I can't help but think here, when I read this, of similar arguments that get tossed around in both directions today in the never-ending battles between our political right and left in America. Namely, some version of, it's unjust that you're making me equal to this person when I deserve to be treated better than them. Here's what I mean. On one side, right? Someone might say, it's unjust that you'd make this immigrant equal to me, a multi-generation, red-blooded American, when I deserve to be treated preferentially. Then on the other side, it's unjust that you'd make this white, cisgender, heterosexual male equal to me, a member of an oppressed class of people, when I deserve to be treated preferentially. True? See, see what I mean? Like, in both cases, the core feeling is you made them equal to us. How dare you? Now look, <clears throat> maybe long-time American citizens should be treated preferentially. Maybe members of oppressed people groups should be treated preferentially. I'm actually not making any comment at all about what policy should be because this parable isn't intended to be a blueprint for how to run a government. By the way, it's also not intended to be a blueprint for how to run a business. So if you're a business owner, hiring people to work for you, let me ease your conscience. You don't need to pay a full year's salary to the person who just got hired for the last month of the fiscal year, right? That's not the application being called for in this text at all. We ought not use this parable as a blueprint for our public policy or for our employee handbooks, right? Everybody hear me on that? Here's the simple point I'm trying to make in this little aside. I'm saying that our politics and our workplaces do give us opportunities to hold our hearts up to the mirror shown to us here in this parable. Matthew 20, right? Whatever we think the policy should be, regarding equality and justice, and it's good for us to form opinions on that. The moment we start to say in our hearts, it's unjust that you're making me equal to this person when I deserve to be treated better than them. I pray God's Spirit will bring to mind this phrase from this parable. You made them equal to us such that we'll hear those words in our own mouths and recognize them for what they are. That phrase seems to be the root of the bitterness here. And it's so insightful by Jesus to word it this way because for many of us, myself included, there's not much that could boil our blood more quickly than the perceived injustice of being treated as equals with someone we see ourselves as superior to. I'll say that again. For many of us, myself included, there's not much that can boil our blood more quickly than the perceived injustice of being treated as equals with someone we see ourselves as superior to. We worked longer under harsher conditions. See it? These last men put in one hour. We bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. How could you be so unfair as to pay us all the same? It's an argument many of us feel in our gut because the way it brings to mind slights we've experienced in school or in the workplace or in our families of origin, but we feel it with respect to God too, which is the primary dimension in which Jesus wants us to consider this parable. 
was talking to Pastor Sean last week about this, and he reminded me of an argument that many have found persuasive against Christianity. It goes something like this. You're telling me that if Adolf Hitler put his faith in Jesus right before his death, said a prayer, gave his life to Jesus, that he's in heaven after all he did? Same heaven as Mother Teresa, but not Gandhi if he never believed in Jesus? What person with a moral compass would ever call that fair? But that's effectively the challenge that Jesus has opened this landowner up to by telling it this way, right? Come on, you're going to tell me that it's right to treat everyone as equals despite the fact that people so obviously don't deserve to be treated as equals? Let's find out how the landowner is going to respond to this. Verse 13 to 15, the landowner responds with three rhetorical questions each of which makes its own point about why what he has done is good and not evil. Listen to these three questions as we read. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with I, what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? I'm one of those people who grew up in the church. I'm pretty sure I heard this parable explained like the last ones hired late in the day they had the persistence to keep looking for work when most people would have quit and gone home that's why the landowner rewards them or I think I've also heard see if you work so hard for God that you're effectively doing 12 hours work for God in one hour so to speak he sees that and will reward it that's not what Jesus says is it we don't have to guess why they all get a denarius. The landowner actually makes three points here about why he did what he did. First rhetorical question from the landowner. Isn't this what we agreed on? Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? I paid you exactly what I said I was going to pay you. No? We agreed to the outset it was fair. You did the work you said you'd do. I paid the amount I said I would pay. What could be more fair or more right than that? Second rhetorical question. Hey, by the way, can't I do what I want to do with what's mine? Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? And notice the heart of gentleness in all this, right? As he addresses the complaining worker friend. Still, he reminds the grumblers, hey, remember, all this money is mine to do what I want to do with it. I paid you what I said I would pay you. But what business of yours is it if I take some of my other money and charitably give it to who I want to give it to? Sure, some got more than they deserve, but seeing that nobody got less than they deserve, what's it to you? Third rhetorical question. Are you jealous because I'm generous? If the first workers had been paid first, they would have gone home happy with their denarius. Pleasant dinner with the family, not a second thought about it. All that happened that disrupted their happiness is that the landowner was generous and they saw the landowner being generous to other people. That pre that's the precise action that diverged from their expectations in a way that produced resentment. And that's why the commentators are right who say this parable really should be called the parable of the generous landowner. He's the focus from the start. It's all about his free grace. So if not with jealousy, how should these first workers have responded? The proper response to the landowner's grace should have been joyful celebration. Shouldn't have been? Like, dang, if those last workers wouldn't have gotten hired, 
or if they would have gone home to their families at the end of the day with just a twelfth of a denarius, their families could have been in real trouble. Imagine the stress that my fellow workers must have been going through sitting in the square all day thinking they weren't going to get hired, but then my boss graciously provided them enough to make it through another day. That's so great that their needs got taken care of like mine did. That would have been the proper response. Instead, it's, it's jealousy. So, of course, as we noted last week, these parables aren't about farming and vineyards, really. The farming and vineyards and familiar things are meant to map to less familiar kingdom things in such a way that the secrets of God's kingdom get unlocked for us. With that in mind, what is Jesus teaching here about the kingdom ruled by the God whom we're meant to see in the vineyard owner here in the story? I think we can say three things mapped to the vineyard owner's three rhetorical questions. First, based on this, didn't you agree with me on a denarius, we can say God is fair. He'll do just what he said he would do. None of us will get less than we deserve. And the moment we feel like we're getting less from God than what we deserve, we need to review what he promised us at the outset. What was ever owed or obligated to us originally. And ask ourselves, what promise to me has God ever broken? What obligation to me? does God have that he hasn't or won't fulfill? When it's all said and done, there won't be a single one. Second thing I think we should say, based on this second rhetorical question, is that God's free to be gracious with what's his. And of course, everything's his. So we can expect that we will frequently see others around us, some who seem deserving and some who seem undeserving, end up on the receiving end of lavish blessings from God, health, wealth, career advancement, success, companionship, salvation. He's free to give those things to whoever he wants, and he loves to give liberally. I love how one commentator in RT France put it. He says, commercially, the vineyard owner is a fool, and God is as uncalculating as that. Commercially, the vineyard owner is a fool, and God is as uncalculating as that that third takeaway the proper response to God's generosity is not jealousy but joy if our eyes weren't on ourselves we could respond with joy when we see others get more than what they deserve we could be thrilled for them right I'll tell you a story my dad who's a football coach was once succeeded in one of his jobs by another Christian guy if that makes sense he left his job another Christian guy took his place who immediately proceeded to disparage my dad in the newspapers, completely unnecessary as soon as he took over the team. I wanted that guy to lose every game the next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that, right? But my mom was like, hey, I'd be happy for him if they win the championship this year. He's a Christian. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm creating burner accounts to post on the message boards. But she got something that I didn't get, namely... That God's given us everything he promised and more. So if God chooses to be generous and give someone else more than what this guy deserves, why shouldn't I feel happy for that person? Listen, as much as we can maybe understand the validity of these three takeaways at an intellectual level, God's fair, he's free to be gracious with what's his, the proper response is is not jealousy but joy. Uh, On a gut level, it still feels wild, right? partly because we've never met anybody like this. 
just like Norman Huffman said, Jesus deliberately and cleverly led the listeners along by degrees until they understood that if God's generosity was to be represented by a man, such a man would be different from any man ever encountered. We've never seen this. And Jesus brings this home by restating what he said immediately before launching into this parable. His summary in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. And now we're better able to understand what this means. It isn't necessarily a wooden formula like, hey, reverse the order. Those furthest away from God here will be closest to the throne in heaven. It's more, hey, if many of the first are going to be last and many of the last are going to be first, that means we're all going to be treated equally in God's kingdom. In other words, you could say it like this, last and first will be pretty irrelevant. I want to brag on some people in our congregation here now. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying they're here today, but who live this out. Um, as, as we're trying to be an outpost of God's kingdom, and if this is what God's kingdom looks like, we have some folks, plenty of folks, lots of folks, more than I can name, who are living this out. We have an elder in this church who is pretty close to first in the eyes of this world on any measure, but who acts as though he might as well be last in this congregation, like spending significant time with those the world doesn't regard so highly, making quiet hospital visits to those seen as last in the world's eyes. We have a deacon at this church who in his professional career was first in multiple settings, right? But who can be found here at North Sub many days on his hands and knees pulling up weeds, collecting trash, examining leaks. We have young people with lots of fun social things they could be doing with their e evenings this upcoming week. Hardworking professionals who will be tired out from work this week and could be relaxing at home in the upcoming days. Exhausted moms who could really use a break but who instead will be here at sports camp pouring out themselves for over 100 kids who will be coming through our doors tomorrow evening with runny noses and boo-boos on their knees and needing trips to the potty at the most inconvenient times. And that's all, that's all, that's what kingdom life is supposed to look like, right? It's upside down. Because here in this little outpost of God's kingdom that we call North Suburban Church, we're all equal, even though to the world, that's ridiculous that last and first could be interchangeable. And remember how the parables reveal these little secrets that have been previously hidden. Here's the big kingdom principle that we're meant to see revealed, opened up for us in front of our eyes in this passage. That God's kingdom doesn't operate on the basis of what we deserve, but rather on the basis of God's grace. God's kingdom doesn't operate on the basis of what we deserve, but rather on the basis of his grace. Now, will there be rewards in heaven? Sure, look back at the chapter before this, chapter 19, you'll see all about that. But there aren't degrees of being saved, as though, oh, he's barely saved, but she's super saved. Grace rules in God's kingdom. And like the other secrets of the kingdom that we've seen this summer, this one was all along, they're all along in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. What comes first in the Old Testament? Deliverance from slavery or following the law? Anybody know? Call it out. Deliverance from slavery, right? Here it is, Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. It already happened. Hey, now here's the law. Don't have any other gods besides me, etc. Israel wasn't saved because they deserved it, in other words, right? They were saved before the law was ever given because God was gracious. Right? Why does Abraham get blessed? It's grace. Why does David receive blessing and promise? It's grace. Why does God bring his people back from exile? It's grace, right? The kingdom always operated on the basis of grace. But people were missing it. 
In fact, outside the Bible, we have records of two Jewish parables that were the exact opposite of this one that Jesus tells in Matthew 20. One of them explains how Jewish people would get a big reward from God because they were following God for longer, while Gentiles would get not as big of a reward from God because they joined the work later. The other talks about a guy who died young, only having worked a short time, but in that short time, he did as much work as all the rest of the people, so God rewarded him the same as everybody else in the end. See how we're prone to reach the exact wrong conclusions about the reward system in God's kingdom? No matter how much grace we've read in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, most of our expectations still get flipped by a parable like this one we've read today. So our big idea is this. Instead of appealing to God to treat us how we deserve to be treated, let's be joyful over his lavish grace. Instead of appealing to God to treat us how we deserve to be treated, let's be joyful over his lavish grace. We've all had those moments that at gut level made us feel that God hadn't been fair with us. But hearers of this parable who take inventory realize that we've all been given way more than what was fair. True? What's fair, what's just is that we'd be doomed, right? Life snuffed out, sent to eternal torment. Like Craig Blomberg says, we are fools if we appeal to God for justice rather than grace. For in that case, we'd all be damned. But this parable is great news. The operating principle of the kingdom is not that everyone gets what they deserve, but rather the operating principle of the kingdom is free grace. While free for us, that grace wasn't cheap, though. It was purchased for us at a high cost. The cost being the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And because that same blood saves us all, there isn't one of us that's more saved than another. If you've trusted in the blood of Jesus, you get the same eternal life that I get, regardless of who has been in a relationship with Jesus for longer or whose faith happens to be stronger. So if you're here this morning or watching and you feel like it's too late for you, it's not. What's more, when you do join the family, you won't be second class here. You'll immediately be on the same plane as all of us. But don't wait, though, because God won't be played. Like we saw last week, the person who says, I'm going to wait to listen to Jesus, might find themselves so hardened that they can't hear Jesus anymore in life, later in life. So if you can hear this today, it means it's not too late. Throw yourself on him today without delay. If on the other hand, you've been following Jesus maybe as long as you can remember, maybe a final word is this. We're not owed anything more than what we've been given. God doesn't owe me anything, doesn't owe you anything. The Adus are going to the other side of the world for him, but God doesn't owe the Adus either. What we presently have is by grace, and what will come our way in the future is by grace. Let's not be bitter and jealous when God is gracious to others who weren't walking with him in their earlier years. Let's celebrate when he lavishes his grace on them. God is never less than just, but in his uncalculating love, he's far more generous than merely doling out what's just. So let's rejoice when we see that extravagant grace in action. Let's pray. God, help our reactions not to be governed by human standards of what we think we deserve, but rather may our reactions, our affections, be governed by the lavish generosity of your kingdom. Free us from envy and bitterness, 
Make us those who rejoice when we see your grace poured out on anyone whom you choose to pour it out on. And help us to be agents of that grace ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close. We're going to respond in singing, and we'll start with um, just one verse and um, a few choruses of a song in which we declare that um, despite our unworthiness, God has lavished his love upon us through Jesus, and that's all we need. here that I confess my worth and my 